Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double-Edged Double Bill. This week, Brad Pitt travels to the cool world of Ad Astra. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I'm just, you know, sitting here in my space station searching for the one true insight that all man searches for. The love of their father! And I am Adam Thomas, and I'm actually in Ad Astra. I played Tommy Lee Jones's eyebrows. Really good job. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I did my best. Yes, but we're not the only ones here, Adam. Uh, we have another guest with us. He's a returning guest. He's been on previously. Directly from Cool World, Mr. Mel Glengore. Mel, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Uh, cool World? Can't recommend it. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like a Florida vacation destination for everybody. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, but welcome back to the show, Mel, and uh, we invited you on and gave you a list of topics you were doing, and uh, you jumped on to this episode, which uh, we're doing about Mr. Brad Pitt, in honor of Bullet Train uh, coming out, finally, and uh, we decided, like, you know, we really wanted to devote an episode to this very big star, obviously, but uh, what attracted you to him in particular as a topic to come back for? Uh, first of all, thank you very much. I appreciate the invite to come back. Looking at everything on the list, you you guys had some really cool ideas uh, this time around, certainly. Um, like, uh, well, I shouldn't spoil them for anything coming up. You know, our audience is just on pins and needles, just like, we can't find out. We have to have it surprised for us. Uh, exactly. Yeah, no, no, I'll keep that under wraps. Uh, but there's some good stuff coming. I'll just say that. Uh, but Brad Pitt just has a really impressive body of work. And he has the luxury of being one of those guys that I hated, like when he first broke out on the scene uh and also has the luxury of being one of those guys who just won me over uh, he put out like three stellar movies back to back to back uh like right in the early to mid 90s uh and it, I, I was just like you know what respect for that guy like if you look back at like he's been making movies basically for about 30 years or so he like started appearing in movies in the late 80s but really started popping in the early 90s with, like, most would say, like, a Thelma and Louise was, like, the first time he kind of popped, mm-hmm. where he plays, you know, a, a himbo, like, dude that they pick up at a certain point. And I think, I'll, from what I at least am aware of with that time, a lot of people were kind of against him. But then again, I'm a bit younger, so I have more the perspective of, like, Brad Pitt just being everywhere. I remember Brad Pitt just being, like, this massive star who had already gotten the acclaim that he had gotten in the mid-90s or so. And I think... I just love the fact that he's kind of spun that off in a way where, like, he's part of that group with, like, obviously, you know, the Ocean series with, like, George Clooney and Matt Damon and him. I consider kind of like the three Soderbergh boys who really popped with that movie in a different way. And what I like about Brad Pitt is he's kind of like the middleman between those other two. Because George Clooney's just, like, otherworldly charming in a way where it's like, oh, that dude could just, you could never see yourself being around him. He's, like, too big a movie star. And then Matt Damon is, like, the really, like, good-looking dude who, at the same time, would have totally gone to your high school 
but still would have like kept going there and become a movie star. Brad Pitt kind of has that weird, comfortable middle ground where he is otherworldly, like charming and handsome and everything. But at the same time, you could see him talking to you and it wouldn't feel too out of the ordinary. He kind of has like straddles that middle ground in a way that makes him a bit more approachable than most movie stars. At least I would argue. I don't know if anyone disagrees with that. Yeah, a guy married to Angelina Jolie, I don't think I could hang with him. <laughs> but he doesn't feel like he's too good for you, Mel. I think that's the thing. He doesn't have as inflated an ego. I could probably hang with him when he was with Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Adam, what, what's your take on Pitt? Uh, I mean, he's slowly turning into Robert Redford. Um, <laughs> True. No, I just, I've always liked Brad Pitt, and I've always been a Brad Pitt fan. I mean, kind of always been like the, you know, at least post Elmo Louise stuff. He was like the Hollywood's the hot actor, the the good looking guy that's debonair. But the thing is, Brad Pitt has always really sort of backed it up. He's he's never turned in really shitty performances. He's done interesting performances, I would say even more so than bad performances. And just as he's getting older and older, like I said, he's just getting better and better. I mean, for the fact that even though I might not have liked the movie so much, but like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and our good feature that we're talking about tonight came out the same year. And they're two just really strong performances. I mean, the guy's just, he's just grown into that where he's just the cool guy. He's, like I said, like Robert Redford. The only thing, it was funny, I was talking to my um, wife uh, today, actually. It's like, the real weird thing is in like 10 years, Brad Pitt will be like normal, should be playing grandfather age in films. (laughs) And it's just, that's so hard to see. Yeah, it doesn't make me feel any younger. Right. I mean, but the thing is also what I like about Pitt is even like, outside of him being like his star persona, he takes chances on weird things. Like I would say the, the good pick we have is definitely like a weird choice that most stars wouldn't kind of take a chance at, but even like through his uh, plan B entertainment production company, he's produced such a wide variety of interesting movies, even to the degree that like before we ever won an Oscar for acting, he won for producing Moonlight and stuff like the last black man in San Francisco and stuff like that. He's a guy who also like really appreciates good film and wants to take chances on that. Even if he's not in front of the screen, even he'll produce a movie and have a small bit part just to get like some kind of financing, like 12 years a slave where he shows up and he's just like, Oh, Hey, I'm building houses and I look like Jesus. Hi everybody. I'm here in the last 10 minutes of the movie. Shit like that. He knows like his star cachet and he uses it to get weird, interesting films made that wouldn't get made in the normal Hollywood system. Yeah, you find his name on some wild stuff, uh, which I think is very, very cool. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me to find that like, he was like an editor on the board of Cat Fancy magazine or, or something like that. Like, he'll just show up anywhere. Big cat guy. <laughs> the hugest cat guy, Brad Pitt. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, we're talking about two very interesting films in this filmography today. If you don't know, basically, the premise of the show is at the end of every episode, Adam and I pick a good and a bad feature related to the topic in question. And uh, we end up with, you know, discussing the good or bad feature on the next episode. So for Brad Pitt at the end of our last episode, we did random picking and we got our bad pick, which we'll discuss first, Cool World from 1992. So very early in his career. And then we'll have my good pick, uh, which is Ad Astra, which uh, was much more recent in his career. So we're definitely going on both ends with it. But let's go ahead and start with uh, Cool World. During his 10 years in prison... Jack Deebs created his own world. You're Jack Deebs, the creator of Cool World, right? I can't believe this. Now he thinks he's going home to the real world. But he's wrong. Real wrong. Welcome to my world. You're not in Kansas anymore! 
cruel world police. I'm a cartoonist. I drew all this. This place exists with or without you. I've been waiting for you, darling. Noids do not have sex with doodles. It's the oldest law in cool world. Since it's only a dream, indulge your fantasies. <laughs> So Cool World uh, came out July 10th, 1992, uh, from director Ralph Bakshi, who we've talked about previously on the show ages ago, but if you're unaware, Ralph Bakshi was sort of like famous for being an underground animator uh, who did a lot of interesting... Uh, more lascivious animation in the 70s, like Fritz the Cat. Uh, you know, as he, he went along, he was doing, like, the Lord of the Rings uh, animated adaptation that came out in, like, 78. Other weird projects in between. Uh, this is his most recent feature film, uh, because uh, Cool World was kind of an infamous disaster when it came out. If you're unaware, um, it's extremely hard to do a plot synopsis of this movie, because <laughs> this movie doesn't have much of a fucking plot. But very basically... It is about a world in which uh, these cartoon characters known as Doodles exist, and there's, like, dimensional travel that allows live-action humans to come in. Our main sort of character is Gabriel Byrne, who's, like, this cartoonist who travels in and out of Cool World, where all these Doodles live, and particularly has a fancy for his own drawing creation, Hollywood, who is voiced by Kim Basinger, and amongst the residents of Cool World is a live-action police detective played by Brad Pitt, who had traveled over there in the, after uh, getting back from World War II in the 40s, um, and a big accident happens. The opening scene is him getting bizarrely abducted into Cool World. Uh, and uh, this was a movie that pretty much came about because Roger Rabbit was such a huge hit, and Paramount was trying to kind of feed on that success that Disney and Amblin had had with that particular movie. Ralph Bakshi originally wanted to make it more of like a horror movie about... A uh, human man having sex with a cartoon woman resulting in a horrible, like, abomination child that would, like, try and go out into the real world and murder, basically. And then Paramount tried to turn that into a bit more of a, like, sellable movie in mid- midway through production. And there was a lot of uh, twists and turns that made this movie, at least at the time, very much seem like a disaster. Uh, but I'm glad to tell all of you that it still is very much a fucking disaster of a movie. This is <laughs> a fucking car wreck of a movie. It's great that it opens with that car wreck because it sets you up perfectly for the complete ungodly mess that this is. Now, Mel, I know you have a bit of an animation background, right? I do, you yes. Do, you dabble with animation to some degree. Um, does this like just hurt you internally? <laughs> oh, externally it? too. <laughs> like, don't... <laughs> Make no mistake, it, it hurts on every level that something can hurt. Uh, I mean, physical, mental, social. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it was, I, I regretted that I actually had to spend money to like rent this because it had been such a long time, uh, but I needed to kind of refresh. I, I kept wondering, is this as bad as I remember? And, and honestly, it's worse because I was so young the first time I saw it uh but yeah yeah like my, my, my mind is sharp so I can really pick up everything wrong with it this time around yeah I remember I also watched it at a very young age because my dad was like oh it's like Roger Rabbit whatever it's like humans in live action he had not seen this film obviously just <laughs> like sure whatever you can watch it and I distinctly remember particularly the whole speech Brad Pitt has at one point establishing the rules of a human cannot have sex with a doodle and I'm like seven 
And I'm like, what does any of this mean? <laughs> and I'm glad to know that I've aged into being a wiser adult who also was unsure of why this is happening <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, it's one of those movies where I thought when I was a kid, like, oh, maybe I'll get when I get older. It's like, nope. Still doesn't make any fucking sense, no matter how old you get, kid. Adam, this was your bad pick. Um, and are you in agreement with our disastrous take on Cool World? I mean, yeah, man. I saw this at a really young age, too. Because um, I remember the advertisements for it, at least like the one-page advertisements being on the back of comic books and all that stuff. So I was like, what is this? Oh, it looks so cool. And, you know, I checked it out. And uh, it's fucking terrible. I mean, it was terrible then. It's worse now. What what the fuck is happening in this thing? Like, what? what is, why is Gabriel Burt? He's in prison. Like, what is happening here? But he's still able to draw. He has an easel and everything in oh, his yeah. fucking cell where he can yeah. draw. Yeah, because that's how life would really be. You know, the comic book artist that goes to prison would be fucking legit. Everybody <laughs> would respect him in his time. Nothing bad would ever happen to him. No, it's just it's it's just it's lunacy. That's the most positive way you can describe this movie. It's absolute lunacy. Brad Pitt, like I said, you know, when you ask my opinion of him, he's not necessarily terrible in it, but it's such an, it's a, it's an interesting take. He seems to be trying, but in a way where he feels like a lost puppy. Everyone has the problem of like the eyeline thing, where anytime they're trying to look at the actual cartoon character's eyes, it's missing most of the time. He's putting in some kind of effort into that in a way, which is like he's such a young kid trying to make this work and he just can't. Nobody can, but he's trying so hard, way harder than Burn is, who's just like, I want to get the fuck out of here. Like, this reminded me of Super Mario Brothers, uh, the live action, uh, mm. in, the, in the regard that it's one of those movies where even as a child, when generally you love everything because you don't know anything... Uh, this was one where, yeah, even even as a young person, you were like, this is garbage. Like, this fails uh, on every level. But you know, always give the Super Mario Brothers movie that it doesn't have as much, like, overstuffed quality that this movie does, where there's just a desperation with, like, in any given frame, especially in Cool World, how many times they have just cartoon shit happening in the margins. Like, it's a fucking bad, mad TV, Al Jaffe, like side thing that's going on at the bottom it's not at the very bottom of the screen it takes up like half of the screen where just two people are talking and then like some random cartoon character will come up and like hit somebody on the head with a hammer and there could be infectious charm to that but in practice here it's just like it's trying to distract you from the badness that's going on with the rest of the movie and it doesn't help that that animation for the most part is quite terrible like there's so much this animation that clearly shows oh paramount skimped on the budget and these animators were just told do whatever the fuck you want and um, God bless him. It, it does not help the movie whatsoever. Yeah, I was going to say that because I do remember that it's just in the production that basically he the, the animators didn't always have anything to work from uh, and were just kind of told just you animate anything as long as it's funny, uh, which, you know, funny being subjective, uh, certainly. But yeah, so there's constantly poorly integrated animated things going on that have nothing to do with uh, the story at large. Some of them, you're just like, can I watch that movie? Can I follow like this guy chasing his wife with a rolling pen or something? Like, and I like, what are they up to this? That looks more interesting than, than whatever Brad Pitt and Kim Basinger have going on. Uh, but yeah, just too much, too much of that. Yeah. It, it's this weird thing, especially also that like so much of that animation, at least in the version that I saw that was on Amazon prime, the animation where, like, it's actually inserted 
like you can see the line because basically the way they would do this is they'd have the live action stuff playing out and just put the animation like over it for the film but you can see the clear point where the animation stops so like characters either appear or disappear in like right before the frame stops to any degree so it's just like a sudden like they disappear into non-reality or whatever Hollywood when she's first introduced there's like a big pan and all of a sudden she just materializes out of nothing <laughs> and then starts dancing shit like that where it's just like oh they I, either the Amazon has a bad copy of this movie or they the actual screen version of this did not give a shit about actually cropping that correctly <laughs> I'd say I, I'd say you're right uh the actual version of this movie it's it's crap Thomas you know granted it's the technology, you know, is still rather new as far as integrating live action to with cartoons, at least in full motion picture length form. But they clearly did not have sort of a, a handle on what they were doing. In regards to what you were saying about the the version that you watched, uh, if it makes you feel any better, I, I watched it on YouTube. I rented it from YouTube. Uh, and yeah, all, all those flaws are there. Like, I, I I don't care where you're watching it. It's it's bad. I'm curious, how do you feel about Bakshi in general as an animation person, Mel? You know, he's one of those guys like R. Crumb. Um, there's absolutely a place for that kind of that kind of animator, that kind of storyteller, uh, and that kind of uh, genre, for lack of a better term, especially now in the Disney rules all era uh, that we're in, where everything more and more every day is starting to feel more kind of homogenous. I miss that kind of subversive era of animation, uh, like Fire and Ice uh, and and like Wizards uh, and like Rock and Roll, uh, like stuff like that. I, I thought it was really cool because when you were a kid, it's really formative. Uh, to see something outside of just kind of kind of your standard after school and Saturday morning fair, you like your like your He Man and your GI Joe, uh, uh, your stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, he's he's got a place. Uh, sadly, I feel like the modern day incarnations of Ralph Bakshi, I I I don't love. I'm not even really sure who is who is that. Seth MacFarlane, Matt Stone, Trey Parker are they are are they the ones carrying the mantle right now? Because I'm. Like, they, they don't really do it for me. And even then, those guys have become industries in their own right, as opposed Indeed. to, like, being the subversive quality that, like, Bakshi always was. To the degree, like, this is one of his only studio movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can tell he got swallowed up by the machine, because whatever subversive quality, there's a bit of that in here. You can see that, with particularly just Hollywood in general. Like, I could get how that character would be maybe formative to certain sides of the internet. <laughs> but at the same time, like, there is this weird quality where like in theory i would like to see hollywood is like this oh this femme fatale and this neo-noir movie that mixes up you know like a more lascivious version of who framed roger rabbit like she is supposed to be like the more fully femme fatale version of like jessica rabbit but the trouble is that like her character and the rules of this world um make no fucking sense like we're introduced to cool world when gabriel Byrne is randomly like transported there when she starts dancing at the club and then we cut away from that to the real world where Gabriel Byrne just is like driving up to his house now. And it's like, wait, we're missing something. <laughs> How the fuck did we get here? <laughs> like there's so many points in this movie where you could just put up like an old silent film real missing. And that would make sense of it more than what actually happens in the fucking movie. <laughs> just the weird leaps in logic, especially even later when Gabriel Byrne, like the, the one fucking doctor dude tells us like he's supposed to have his um, full on destiny as a hero fulfilled. Where was that? 
Oh my god. What the fuck are you talking about? And he becomes a superhero and Gabriel Byrne disappears from the movie. He doesn't do the voice. It's like Maurice LaMarche, I think, doing the voice of that big superhero character. And he just, he's not even in the fucking movie anymore. Can you blame him, really? <laughs> Look, he really I, wanted he to saw go. It out. <laughs> he saw it out and took it. <laughs> I don't blame him, no. This was one of the earliest movies I can remember where I could clearly tell like something is off about it. And then learning about the production history and how so much of it is like on the first day of like post pre-production, like when they were on set being told about shit, like, oh, we changed the script and we changed the pages and stuff to the degree that this movie feels like it's just tonally confused and all over the place. Where at some points it wants to be full on Looney Tunes and silly with the cartoon characters and at other points it wants to be this darker, weird fantasy edging on horror movie about the idea of like a cartoon wanting to become a real person but it never coalesces into anything that makes any remote fucking sense with the multiverse the idea of the multiverse being so ubiquitous right now uh, i would have loved to have been able to peek into the reality where he got to make this exactly the way he wanted uh because like clearly it feels like the only thing they kept from the original idea were the backgrounds those those gorgeous twisted like like heavy metal like late 70s filmation like styled like hand-painted backgrounds uh that were clearly out of out of a nightmare like all of that i feel like those still images are the strongest thing about the movie uh I, yeah i wanted to see the the final production that that was tied to those instead of what we ended up with yeah, I agree that, like, I think I like the the best thing I can say is the production design sort of a cool role with the, like some of those matte paintings and stuff. Even, like, when you have humans interacting with the cartoons in Cool World, it's a lot of these, like, 2D sort of, like, cutouts of, like, street lamps and all these other things that are designed in the way of, like, these backgrounds you're talking about kind of stayed there. Um, mm. It looks like a cheap stage play at certain points because I don't think he, <laughs> Ralph Bakshi is that skilled as, like, a live-action director to, like, film that in the right way so you don't see, like, the seams of it. Or maybe you're supposed to see the seams. I don't know. It's it's a good idea, though. I like the idea of, like, being in a world where, like, because a human's interacting, it, like, the sort of cartoonish elements take on a new element to it. Um, even, like, the idea when, later on, you have Gabriel Byrne in Hollywood, like, in the real world, and you have, like, real Kim Basinger and Gabriel Byrne occasionally turn into cartoon characters, like, they're transforming almost. I like that idea, but once again, the rules aren't established nearly well enough to where when that happens, I'm just confused. It's like, why is this happening? Why are they doing this? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. It feels like the first two acts, honestly, have very little bearing on the third act. It's, it's mm -hmm. like the movie doesn't even really figure out what it wants to be about until the climax, uh, when it's just clearly the idea is that the the union of a doodle and a noid uh as they call the the humans uh the union of these two just leads to a plague of biblical proportions uh that spills out into the real world uh so it's like we never realized that those were the stakes we were playing for which i guess makes for a nice surprise but yeah like the, like the first hour really just feels like a like a different movie trying to accomplish something else yeah, really, the only thing that kind of carries over besides some of, like, the main characters is that professor guy who's at the very opening just like, oh, well, Brad Pitt, welcome to Cool World. I will teach you everything that's going on. And that motherfucker disappears for an hour <laughs> until he comes back as a dude, to, like, <laughs> a small guy in a fucking trench coat. He's like, oh, well, I'm back here, and I'm going to explain a bunch of things in the 20 minutes before this movie ends. 
he's basically like it's like a shell story almost at that point he's like the old man from the beginning and end of saving private ryan <laughs> it doesn't know what it's trying to do at all like you said there's a cool idea here and, and it's something that could you know potentially be really interesting and fun it's almost too busy trying to be crass which again i don't mind crassness in animation like bashki's been doing it forever this movie it's almost like that's all it really wants to give you is a lot of hyped up sexual energy with no real discernible plot or reason behind it that can carry the weight of this 90 minutes or whatever it is. It's just a huge misfire on every possible level from, I mean, all the way down to creative decisions and acting decisions and even wardrobe in some parts. It's just, the movie's just a fucking mess, dude. It's, a, it's an absolute mess. That is a long 90 minutes, too. It lasts absolutely forever. But I would say, at the very least, this is definitely fits into sort of like in the bad movies camp that we've talked about. Um, this definitely feels more like a train wreck bad movie, where I'm not like entertained in so bad, it's a good way. But I'm also never bored. I'm just confused the whole fucking time. <laughs> Which is something, at least. I can like hang my hat on like, what? We're doing this now? It's a lot of that. It's a lot of like questioning every single tacit turn like even like with the crassus adam's talking about that is so exemplified by the weird group of like thug animated characters that are around mm. like the little baby with the knife hands and yeah. the one woman who really wants to have sex with gabriel byrne like those cartoon characters are nothing like the one of them is literally just i want to fuck hollywood that's all <laughs> my character is that's all every single bit of me just i want to have sex with you holly please have sex with me and it's just like once again, the, the first two acts of it where we spend time in Cool World are, like, these weird shenanigan, non-storylines like that are going on. Like, even Brad Pitt has his whole storyline where he uh, wants to end up with uh, the Candy Milo character, the cartoon woman who works at the saloon. I want to be with you, but at the same time, I want to abide by the rules of Cool World, and I'm annoyed that I can't have sex with you. And all this other stuff, and his fucking buddy, the spider guy... Who oh, yeah. is one of the more confusing side characters too, where he's just like, is he like gonna double cross Brad Pitt? Or is he on his side? That whole like phone call conversation that happens at a certain point where she's like, I don't know, are you a double, triple, quadruple, quintuple agent? What the fuck are you doing? What is your motivation again? <laughs> I feel like uh Ed Harris in Glen Gary Glen Ross, when he's just like, What is this in aid of? Like, like, what is what is all this for? Because, like, yeah, if, if my only two choices are confusion and boredom, yeah, I guess I'll choose confusion every time. But yeah, how far does that get you, really? I mean, it gets us to the point of, like you mentioned, like a plague of affecting Las Vegas of cartoon characters mm. and bullshit like that. That makes no logical sense whatsoever. But at the same time, it's just like, you know, okay, this I we've watched like for this show so many like extremely boring movies mm -hmm. as opposed to like this one is a colossal nightmare. Um, but at the same time, yeah, that still doesn't give it like the merit of like, oh, this is one I would recommend to people. Not at all. Not even on the level of like, oh, this is a fun kind of train wreck to watch like unfold. Only if like you're an animation historian, maybe a Ralph Bakshi completionist, I could see you maybe having interest in getting something else out of this because there are points of good animation, I would say. I think my favorite bit of it is there's the one guy who I'm not sure what his purpose is, but the big purple guy in the suit oh, yeah. who runs into a bunch of like street kids. It's just like, here's some wooden nickels and the nickels <laughs> are like sentient start attacking them. That's like the, probably the best bit of like actual theatrical looking animation, but that's cut in between. Like there's so many points where this feels like sub Hanna-Barbera bullshit. 
in terms of the animation style, in terms of just, like, the quality of the animation. Like, you can totally tell at certain points, it's just like, you, this is where the budget ran out. This is where some of the budget didn't quite work out for you. <laughs> or even with, like, Hollywood, when, like, her or Gabriel Byrne turn into the cartoon characters in the real world, it is, like, some of the worst versions, like, the rotoscoping that Bastion has done so well in other things. Uh, uh. But in those cases, it's just like, oh, we have nothing that we can do. Or even, like, when the tunes start invading... And they start just, like, affecting other Las Vegas patrons. And clearly it's just like, let's have something here for a few seconds that kind of vaguely looks like a weird cartoon thing. That's a weird place, too, to set the climax. Like, we're supposed to care that Las Vegas is being wiped off the face of the earth. And I'm just like, sorry, guys, you backed the wrong horse. Uh, like, I'm not going to miss anybody from Vegas. I don't know, but Frank Sinatra Jr.'s performance got interrupted by Kim Basinger doing that terrible song. Mel, don't you feel so much for him when that happened? <laughs> you you mentioned the rotoscoping uh, before, and Bakshi, man, that guy loves the rotoscoping, always has. Uh, it, it's I I am I'm in a weird place about it. Like I've I've seen it done well, and I've seen it done poorly, and he's honestly been responsible for both. Uh, like over his storied career, it's. It's such a weird thing in animation circles when 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 people talk about rotoscoping because like like a like a lot of people don't even really consider it a valid form of animation. Uh, I don't quite feel that bad about it. I it it's just it's weird though because it my, I think my problem with it is nine times out of ten it just doesn't integrate well with the with the animation that isn't rotoscoped like it, it clearly looks like it's being meddled with uh it's like your eye sees it and just and just you know something's wrong even if you don't know what it is like a that, that recent chip and dale rescue rangers movie uh that came out there there's a great line in that where they're talking about early 2000 cg uh, and, and one of them says, remember that era in animation where everything looked real, but nothing looked right? Uh, and that's exactly what rotoscoping is to me. Right, yeah. Uh, Robert Zemeckis picked up the torch of that kind of weird rotoscoping for the worse. Mm. Uh, <laughs> like around that era, for sure. But but yeah, like in here even, like there's points where he clearly uses, like I think it's used best when like Holly's doing her dancing. Yes. I would say. Mm. I think that's probably like, some of the best examples of the animation in general in this movie. But, you know, low bar. Probably my favorite, like, sort of effect of the movie is the bit where after they have their weird sex scene, her and Gabriel Byrne, um, and she starts transforming into actual Kim Basinger. I do like that effect quite a bit, like the dissolve that happens from, like, her cartoonish self to Kim Basinger. And I kind of, like, was fascinated by that particular element of it. Uh, then she becomes Kim Basinger just kind of acting like a weird cartoon character, not even, like, the same Hollywood when she gets into the real world after that point. And it's another thing where it's just like, is Hollywood like a villain of the story or not? They don't really know where to go, but it's not like an interesting moral ambiguity. They're just left and right. Don't know what to do with the fucking character or any of the characters. Like I mentioned, Gabriel Burns turns into a fucking Superman at a certain point. And even before we get into final thoughts about this movie, we should definitely talk a bit more about Pitt because I oh, think yeah. I'm curious, uh, Mel, what do you think? This was around, I guess the area you were talking about where he was kind of like in the, uh, bad zone for you necessarily. Do you feel like he's kind of um, lesser in this movie, or he's at least trying? How do you feel about him in this? Uh, yeah, this was definitely one of the before he he changed my mind. <laughs> um, I, I it's it's difficult 
to blame him uh, for, or even his performance because he's he's clearly doing this very kind of like like forties like gumshoe kind of like Sam Spade kind of guy uh, in this uh, with the, like the voice and the inflection and, and all the mannerisms. Uh, so like I, I guess all that's fine, but I the material wow the it's like he he really had he really has it's empty calories he has nothing to work with there so i guess i applaud him for for making of it what he did if i never saw another brad pitt film after this to change my mind i i would have written him off uh i i, I think i would have just been like oh that guy's going nowhere uh which, which is sad very very heartbreaking yeah, particularly the bit early on when it's the fully live action and his mother has just died in that horrible car accident and he's getting PTSD and he's doing like the, oh, look over there. Oh, they're maybe in the trees. Oh, no, medic! Get a medic! I'm like, oh, Brad, Brad, Bradley, you, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> this is this is embarrassing. I'm so, I feel so bad for him in that. Or even like later on, like he is part of like one of the biggest, dumbest moments of this movie that is clearly like bad ADR where he dies falling from this, like, hotel, and his character is then transported back to Cool World by his spider assistant guy. She's like, oh, no, he's gone. We can't get him back. It's like, wait, was she? Was he killed by a toon? Why was that that? Oh, if he's killed by a toon in the real world, then he could become a toon here, and then he becomes a cartoon character. One of many moments, just like, you know, f- I guess. Fuck it, right? <laughs> just fuck yeah, it, sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh. A new just, rule uh, every minute uh, in that movie, and just oh yeah, just whatever the movie needs, just throw that in there. Whatever you whatever you got to do to get to the credits, man, just use it. Probably can agree with Mel. If he wouldn't have come out with anything after this, I mean, I would have probably written him off as well. And the fact that, I mean, we got to be honest here, and I, I hate to even put it this way, but the fact that he's he's so ridiculously good looking, even in this movie, that's probably what got him another chance. Because what the fuck else could have? Like, anybody who would have seen this movie would have been like, oh, no, we're not casting this guy. There's no way. It is such a weird performance. Like you said, you got the PTSD bit and the very, you know, the sort of flashback opening bit and all that stuff. But then when he's trying to play the neo-noir detective in the way too big suit, um, <laughs> I mean, it is ridiculous. But he, even, like, his, his voice changes, his whole demeanor changes, none of it works. Like, none of it works at all. It's fascinating. I will say that, like, Thomas, you, you alluded to the whole movie as a whole, but even just Pitt in this movie, you kind of got can't stop looking at him. It, it's, I don't know if it is the suit or how good he looks, or just the, the choices that are being made. Like, the director is probably feeding him a lot of these ideas, but also just going with it. it it's just, it's so bizarre. It, it's a performance unlike any he's ever given uh, before or since. I mean, thankfully. <laughs> um it's it's just yeah if you're a batch key completionist or you like this type of animation like rotoscoping and stuff which if anybody's doing rotoscoping batch key's probably done it the best i can think of like wizards and basically almost all of fire and ice mm-hmm. uh looks legit but um this is just it's it, everything seems kind of half-assed in this one like obviously it's probably the creative differences and the fact that the original nightmarish plot was abandoned uh, pretty quickly, but it's just, if you want to watch early Brad Pitt stuff too, I guess it's there for that, but uh, I'd be hard pressed 
to recommend this to anybody, be it a Brad Pitt fan or an animation fan. It's just, there's nothing here. Those sound like pretty good final thoughts, and we should probably move on to our next feature in a bit. But Mel, what about your final thoughts on Cool World? I, whenever I watch stuff, I usually say, oh, I know blank would like this or so-and-so would like this. I don't know who, I. All, all of my friends are like in like comics and animation uh, and, and film. And I'm just like, I could not recommend this. To, like they would be angry with me if I recommended it to them. I would like someone to try this again is what I want. I'd like a cool world reboot. I think the idea, and when I say idea, I'm not really sure which one, because there are like seven uh, in the movie, like all vying for the crown. Uh, but if if someone could get like one good solid idea uh, and just commit to it, I, I would like someone to try again with a proper budget, proper creative control, uh, some real themes uh, to explore. Because sadly, I the the one that disturbs me the most is like, I think unintentionally I think the movie makes a statement about interracial relationships that doesn't go well. Uh, so uh, yeah, clean that up. Maybe give it another go. Uh, like I, I would I would be very interested to to see it like redone with the kind of care that a lot of old things are now being re revisited with. Uh, I, I think there, there's potential there. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that, I've, I've always said do it with something that didn't quite work the first time. And uh, Cool World fits that moniker quite well. <laughs> it didn't quite work this first effort. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those movies that's definitely, I think, more fascinating just hearing about kind of like the background about it. A lot of the production stuff. Just even weird things like they were so desperate to really promote this movie that they literally put Hollywood on the Hollywood sign, like a big cutout of her. Just on the famous Hollywood sign and shit. They're just like so desperate to make this work. And I think like all the production weird stories I've heard about this movie are more fascinating to me than just ultimately the movie itself is just this massive mismatched disasters like one after the other. Just so many weird ideas trying to work and most of them just really falling apart despite some interesting animation, some cool interesting little bits and pieces. Even I will say... Pitt in this movie is definitely it's the best example of like a guy who is not doing a good performance but is really trying which is way more than you can say for most of the other cast members even some of the voice actors aren't putting their best effort into it compared to Pitt is trying so hard and flailing and failing but in at least fascinating ways um yeah this is more of a bizarre infamous bad movie than it is necessarily one that is an undiscovered gem or whatever like people like to kind of like rediscover movies that were like failed the first time it's like no this is secretly brilliant not quite the cool <laughs> world no I, I wouldn't put that on it but maybe if somebody else could take some of the ideas of cool world and make it into something better i'd love to see them try yeah i don't think anybody's gonna be relitigating this <laughs> like you're not gonna find any youtube videos like cool world is good actually i don't know you'd be surprised <laughs> you'd be surprised with some of the things people defend uh but i don't know paramount plus coming soon cool world <laughs> the, <laughs> the limited series eight episodes <laughs> who knows maybe prestige Let's <laughs> prestige, prestige. <laughs> Emmy, please. Um, but let's get into our good feature now, Ad Astra. What are you thinking about? I do what I do because of my dad. He was a hero. He gave his life for the pursuit of knowledge. Major, we have some highly classified information. What can you tell us about the Lima project? 
Its objective was to search for advanced extraterrestrial life. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. This might come as quite a shock to you. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. All life would be destroyed. We're counting on you to find out what's happening out there. So Ad Astra came out uh, September 20th, 2019 from uh, director James Gray, who co-wrote it with uh, Ethan Gross. And uh, if you're unaware of this movie, you might be because uh, this was not a huge success when it came out in 2019. As Adam kind of alluded to earlier, this was the year where everyone was very obsessed with Pitt's performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And admittingly, like, you know, they got him his first acting Oscar finally. And it's a great performance in that particular movie. But Ad Astra kind of came out. It was dumped in September and was sort of a big victim, from what I understand, of the Fox-Disney merger. Because uh, Fox had been making this movie and had been through some production problems, like some reshoots and shit like that, um, throughout the past uh, you know couple years while it was, after it was filmed. And then Disney bought Fox and was like, what the fuck is this? Ad Astra? <laughs> sure, Brad Pitt's in it, but like, well, fuck it, it's in September, whatever, might get some Oscar nominations. Which you got a Best Sound Mixing nomination, deserved, I would say. Uh, but if you're unaware of this movie, basically it is about Brad Pitt, who plays uh, an acclaimed astronaut who has uh, been very famous for, like, oh, his, blo- his blood pressure doesn't go up that much, even in the middle of, like, huge disasters. Like, at the opening, there's a big disaster involving, like, a big satellite uh, crumbling apart, uh, but he survives and he keeps his cool. So they enlist him on a new top-secret mission, and this top-secret mission is to go to uh, the, um, I forgot, is it, like, the Neptune Project? That's right. What is it? Yeah, the Neptune Project, where basically or the, his the father... Project, uh, the Lima Project, yes, yeah. which basically... Right, in Neptune, where his father, who was a famous astronaut, Tommy Lee Jones, had been on, he went missing, like, several years ago, back when Brad Pitt was, like, a teenager, and uh, they found new, like, big bursts of, like, energy that have been coming off of Neptune, where the Lehman Project was last heard of, and uh, so he's basically assigned to go after his father, see what's going on over there in Neptune, hopefully stop whatever is causing these big solar flares to happen, and uh, Brad Pitt goes on a little journey, uh, from to the moon and then eventually to Mars and throughout uh, the solar system to find his father. And, uh, you know, this was my good pick. And um, it's not necessarily my favorite Brad Pitt movie, but I find it really fascinating just as, like, once again, given that, like, kind of Disney Fox and Mel kind of references what we're talking about, Cool World, that sort of, like, Disney uh, commodification of big, massive blockbusters. Um, this was, like, a movie that would never really get made again. I'm surprised it got even made in 2019 of, like, this contemplative, slow-paced, $100 million budget sci-fi movie that mainly boils down to Brad Pitt has issues with his dad, and he's going on the journey to find his dad. And even, like, the set pieces feel very muted in an interesting way. And I really do dig this movie quite a bit. Uh, but Mel, had you seen this movie before? I had. I was actually there opening night. I think it's a great performance from him. I think it's a great performance from Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who is in it like <laughs> like eight minutes or uh, however long. I think the only thing wrong with this movie, and it's not even the movie's fault, is that it falls prey to basically what amounts to false advertising. Because the trailer for this really made it look like like J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Like there were dune buggies on the moon and space pirates uh, and and like things are blowing up left, right and center. And then you you get to the 
the theater and sit down and it's, it's just it's not that at all it's like those elements are there but not in that traditional way whatsoever <laughs> right yes <laughs> Yeah, I, I do remember I saw this actually with my dad who was super excited for it. And the first thing he said the moment we walked out of the theater was just, well, that wasn't what I expected. Mm-hmm. That wasn't quite. I think particularly once we get to like the baboon, that really threw him for a fucking loop that this like slow contemplative sci-fi actioner had like a baboon monster attack movie in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, one of many things. But I know, Adam, you're a big fan of this one as well. Yeah, I absolutely. Um, I mean, this is completely right up my alley, too. It's, you know, slow burn, contemplative sci-fi that also just in the middle of it has, even though it's only like two and a half minutes long, but one of the coolest sort of lunar car chases. Like, what the (laughs) hell is going on? How cool is this? The minimal sound uh, just makes it work so much better because that's one of the biggest mistakes movies do in general when they take place in space. And, you know, you can hear the gunshots or the explosions and all that. Like, there's no fucking way. Uh, this one does it amazingly. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think this movie is pretty much perfect. Uh, it's just wonderful, muted, understated performance from Pitt. It's just, there's so much here that just works. A uh, Donald Sutherland is great in his little bit. Uh, you know, Ruth Nega is fantastic in it. All the side characters you meet around Pitt are terrific. But at its core, it's just a father-son sort of daddy issue movie. And, you know, about depression and loss and resentment and guilt and and just people turning out not to be who you might have thought they were. And the people you sort of idolize and champion, you know, turn out to be monsters. And it's just, it's just a fucking terrifically shot film, too. That's the thing. This movie looks incredible. The cinematography is absolutely fantastic. The use of minimal color and then just shots of bright red or something like that. It just, it makes the whole thing just pleasure to watch. A hundred percent. And I'm a sucker for any like father and son movie. Uh, that's, that's how you get me. Uh, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, sibling rivalries. Those are kind of like the the, the, the three things that, that just that draw me in. You get to Tommy Lee Jones at the end and he just lays it all out there. He's just like, I have never cared about you or your mom or, you know, or any of your bullshit. He was just, you know, searching for the big answers, uh, dedicated his life to that. And it's a, it's a little cliche. It's not the word I want to use. I think modern audiences are uh, can be a little cynical, but I agree with the with the big takeaway, and that's just that life isn't it's not what you're searching for. Uh, it's 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 what's going on in the moment uh, that 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 you should be embracing. Now, now, what you're saying is it's not about the destination; it's the journey. They, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Whoa, whoa! <laughs> Big revelations here, buddy. <laughs> totally unaware of this concept. Uh, but no, I agree that I think it's a movie that goes about that kind of thing, and I like, I love so much like that scene where he finally encounters Tommy Lee Jones because, like, the whole journey of the movie has basically been about kind of that hero worship you have of somebody who left at a certain point in your life, but you're like, but I know they left for a good cause and they're a good person and they're doing big, meaningful things in the world and the universe and everything. Like they're finding out things that we'll eventually come to know about as time goes on. I'm sure it'll be great because he even talks about that. And some of admittedly, my biggest problem with this movie is the voiceover. You can very much tell it's not really needed. Most of the time, it feels like that was uh, studio mandated 
to a certain degree of just like like the bits where he's going around like the lunar base which I love the fact that it's just over commercialized and shit mm-hmm. we didn't need him saying like if my dad saw this he'd kick everybody's ass to Timbuktu like I, I, I kind of got <laughs> based on like, what he was fucking talking about earlier but like the whole journey is him basically having this complex but like nope my dad is a great guy I'm gonna like find him and I'm sure he's gonna just had so many discoveries about what actually is happening and you go there and uh, you find out your dad's a wounded dude who um, did some horrible fucked up shit and was awful and all of this like time all these people that you also hurt in the process getting here Brad Pitt um, it was to find out that your dad was a fucking piece of shit who you shouldn't have hero worshipped all that much and at the same time they don't treat Tommy Lee Jones like a villain I love the fact that when you see him he's like he's a wounded animal Mm -hmm. basically like, he's so frightful, despite the fact that he's saying, like, oh, I don't give a shit about you or your mom or anything else. When Brad Pitt tries to, like, touch him, Tommy Lee Jones looks like a St. Bernard naturally, but it's like <laughs> he found one with, a like, a broken foot. And he's like, no, no, I don't want to get near you. No. It's like, oh, Tommy, no. I mean, it's the saddest thing, honestly. Like, like you're right. They don't villainize him. Uh, you, It's horrible what he does, but you do feel for him. I mean, because he, he, he came all this way to find the answer to the question there, there there's that old saying when the gods want to punish us they answer our prayers like he had the one question and he and the sad thing is he got the answer but the answer yeah. was no uh and that hurts that like that has to that has to break you especially when your entire identity is wrapped around this one idea and it almost seems like even the stuff he's saying to red people like i didn't care about any of that stuff is also a lie he's telling himself because it's just like, no, I, I went all this way and it was for a good thing. And fuck you guys on Earth. I did this for a good reason. It's like, oh, no, you didn't. You know that this was just like for nothing. Yeah. And you're so upset about it. But at the same time, no, you got that answer. It's that whole thing where like sometimes the scientific method gives us the answer and we want to do trials again over and over. It's like, no, you're getting the same result, dude. The mm-hmm. the same result multiple times over is, at a certain point becomes madness. And that's what he's got. He's gotten space madness. Full on Ren and Stempy space madness. <laughs> and he just, <laughs> it's just shown through once again a sad wounded puppy but i like that brad pitt also has a lot of that even as like he's finding out things like from ruth nagel which is like your dad killed my parents and this is your thing to bear that's your fucking problem buddy at this point like he accepts that but also he just realizes like man all these times where i've been fucking cool it's only been because i was wanting to be like my dad that's the only reason I was this cool customer who got all this, like, acclaim or whatever. And I can't even accept the fact that, no, that just came from me naturally. It came from, like, me wanting to make daddy happy. And it's like, guess what, dude? Uh, you shouldn't make that dude happy. <laughs> he didn't give a fuck about you. But, yeah, like, the, just the fact that, like, Brad Pitt kills so many people on this journey. <laughs> so many people die in his wake. It feels kind of like a weird subversion where like i mentioned matt damon and george clooney earlier um weirdly there were three different movies in the 2010s that were about like ocean skies going to space and in the two <laughs> other ones like in gravity george clooney was like the ultimate pillar of like no i'm the greatest astronaut possible i'm gonna inspire sandra bullock to keep going even though i'm dead even though i'm not in the movie for most of it i'm gonna be like the big inspiration point to keep her going um and then matt damon was like i'm gonna science the shit out of this in the martian <laughs> uh, meanwhile uh, brad pitt was just like i'm gonna be that cool customer kind of like clooney and damon were in their movies but at a certain point i'm gonna realize like oh no i'm a scared man <laughs> who wants to make daddy love me and I'm going to unfortunately kill people along the way to make sure daddy loves me. It's hard to deny that. (laughs) I'm, I'm looking inward. I'm looking at myself and I'm like, am I a sad man who will destroy anything in my wake for my father's approval? Am I also that guy? (laughs) Hopefully not. No, no, I, I don't think you would murder people along the way, Mel. And this is all legally binding. None of us would do that. 
<laughs> so if there's any accusations, no. I will straight kill everyone. <laughs> Anybody who's listening to this, you're uh, satire parody of the plot of Adam Thomas. Do not reflect those of Double H. <laughs> your fucking number is up if you're listening to this. <laughs> But what do you think about some of that stuff, Adam, with like the father-son relationship? I don't necessarily never have really had a super strong relationship with my father either, but it's heartbreaking. Like I said, it's, you could tell he sort of idolized his father and the fact that you don't even got into the same field with him. You know, he even says my father was a hero and all this stuff, you know, believes his dad's been dead this long. And then he finds out he's still there and he does whatever it takes to get to him, including anybody in this movie. Who's not Brad Pitt. Just don't work with Brad Pitt or be associated <laughs> with him. You are going to die um, in sometimes really horrific ways um, and depressing ways, but it's just the ultimate goal of trying to seek your father's, you know, approval by being the hero to him and rescuing him and, you know, bringing him back home and all that stuff. And then when you find out, like, you know, Tommy Jones uh, referenced the, you know, I never much cared for you or your mother. You know, this is, this is my work and this is what I need to do. And ultimately the sort of existential crisis he suffers when he gets an answer to what his question is, but it's just not the answer he wanted or not the answer he believed in and how it just dismantles a man's psyche. And there's no coming back from that. And, you know, the fact that it's our hero's father is just makes it even ultimately more devastating. You know, yeah, he gets to go back and he has the, you know, Hollywood eyes and he would live Tyler in the, in the restaurant and, He's given his final speech. You know, the, the main thing is to love now and, you know, I live in love and all that. And that's, that's great. But he's, you know, a man in his late 40s and he's just now learning this. And it's just now, you know, having to sort of redefine who he is as a person, not just Tommy Lee Jones' son. Like, who is Roy? You know, and it's, it's a really cool story. It's really great. But it's ultimately, this movie is just filled with tragedy. Mm-hmm. That voiceover being the biggest tragedy of all. <laughs> see, I don't see. I don't mind it. I really don't mind the voiceover. Is it necessary? No, but it doesn't really take away from me either. I like good voiceovers, but I also like them when there's there's not much to it. It's just kind of here and there. I mean, some of the lines are stupid. I agree, especially the one you said, Thomas. But I don't mind it. I I, I think it's fine. It's certainly not the level of Blade Runner bad, because at least you know Brad Pitt seems to be giving a shit. Mm-hmm. As opposed to uh, Harrison Ford, just like, I'm a Blade Runner. That's what they call me. <laughs> Wasn't that Charlie Kaufman, too, uh, who came in late in the game to write that? He did some uh, uncreated rewrites on the voiceover. Yeah. I believe. Um, right. But maybe my issues with the voiceover kind of come from the fact that this movie does such an astonishing, great job with world building without the need of voiceover. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the look of even, like I mentioned, like the moon base that's full of, like, almost like a TGI Friday's restaurants and, like, uh, mascots and shit like that. That we've commercialized the moon as a thing that, like, we're trying to get away from Earth, but also just, like, no, we're bringing Earth to these other planetary systems, our shitty like yeah. commercialized ideas of like what life should be. We're going to bring to the fucking stars and do that shit. But even when we go to like, I love the look of Mars in this movie so much, particularly that one hallway where Ruth Nega comes up to Brad Pitt and the way that like the lights cascade and shit like that. I love the look of all that just to show off that like, yeah, Mars is this place that like we've kind of colonized this degree and we've tried to integrate 
some of our things, like weird therapies, like the the room that has like all the screens on it, to try and calm you down. I love that scene so much where after Brad Pitt finds out all this shit, just like, oh look, here's this calm landscape and everything. He's having like a fucking nervous breakdown in the middle of this room. <laughs> like I just, I love the elements where it just shows it like, oh, we've tried to integrate these things that make it look like we're an official, you know, like NASA sponsored like facility here but it's hiding just the fact that we're in the middle of space and the unknown and we're just trying to put this facade up for ourselves just like nope we know how to handle this we can bring earth to the stars and it's like no you can't <laughs> or, or you, you can but should you <laughs> right or, exactly there's a lot of that um but yeah well what do you love about like what about some of the sci-fi set pieces and world building elements for you mel i love that that room where it's it, it looks like like acoustic soundproofing material uh yes. where it's like a like a bunch of of like 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 rectangular shapes just got to add audience Brad Pitt uh, goes in to do some VO like the ADR for the movie and that's <laughs> right uh yeah no that that's that's super cool I love I love the look of Neptune just this this kind of this like wash of blue and the rings um it's all it's all very striking yeah this was like the era of of like good looking space movies because like first man came out around the same time uh very underrated this, and well. that was gorgeous too it's like people yeah. really figured out how to shoot shit in space so a couple of things just like stick out uh to me like uh the the, the voiceover is one thing like with you adam like the the, the voiceover is not bad I've, I've certainly seen worse but um or heard worse but i i wish like i think that movie's so good at letting you sit with moments uh, that sometimes I felt like the voiceover intruded uh, and I, I, I wanted to, like, you don't, like, there's that line at the end of Collateral uh, with uh, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx where he gets shot and he's sitting on the subway and he retells that story about a guy dies on a subway and he's just, his body's just doing laps around uh, for, does anybody even notice? Like, there's no need to reiterate that because we get the point uh, of what the movie is saying. Uh like we heard that story told early on and now here you are in that same position. I don't like, I don't, I don't need you to bring that back up. I, I, there's a much worse version of that. It's not even the voiceover in this movie. It's Tommy Lee Jones saying, you gotta let me go. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> is that what you got to do right now? <laughs> it's like, hmm, I wonder if there's some sort of larger existential reasoning behind those words. I wonder if that means something else beyond literally letting him go. <laughs> it can be on the nose. Uh, I, I also think the, uh, the baboon massacre. I, I love that. It's it's a little on the nose too, because it's just like, uh, here's here's a movie that's in part about the search for God, and here comes Darwin to just burn all that down. <laughs> I think there's definitely like a lot of elements like that where this feels so much like if you had told me some of this on paper, this would sound like a fucking Roger Corman cheap ass seventies era like space movie. But I like the fact that it's kind of um, James Gray clearly taking influence from some of those things, but integrating them in his kind of like much calmer style. Like he's a filmmaker who does that a lot. Like I would recommend We Own the Night. The Walking Phoenix, Mark yeah, Wahlberg movie, yeah. which feels a lot like one of those, like, oh, it's a typical crime movie, but it's much more character focused and a lot more subtle. Mm -hmm. And also has, like, the big thrills, like, that fucking car chase in We All Night is so fucking good. One of the best car chases I've ever seen. And even in this movie, with, like, we mentioned earlier, the whole, like, rover chase, I love how, like, that's an element, once again, that you could see in, like, Ice Pirates 
or some mm-hmm. bullshit space movie <laughs> from like 20, 30 years ago. As opposed to here, it plays out like a car chase that is working with the actual limitations of gravity of the atmosphere of the moon. And even like when they pull out the guns and stuff and they like shoot them at people, the laser bullets sorts take a while to travel. And the, the, the car crash even that occurs with the rover, like it takes a bit for it to like explode in the way that a traditional car chase would. I love elements like that. We're just, just like, this is a clearly like schlocky sci-fi concept and we're taking it to a uh, lower pace, like realistic as much as it can be sci-fi conceit. And that's a great idea. I, I love the idea of that, like taking something schlocky and treating it with sincerity. Uh, like that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. You've ascended when you can do that <laughs> as a filmmaker. So yeah, go, go you good on you. Right. Even like at the ending when like, um, he's going through the rings and he's got like the one thing shielding him. Once again, it feels like it'd be some bullshit <laughs> in like a really lame sci-fi movie from some older time, but it really works. Is that what really appeals to you about it, Adam? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, it, I'm really a big fan of this movie as far as how just kind of quiet it is. Mm-hmm. And it's just real, like I said, real, just subtle, uh, most of it. But then, yeah, you'll have this crazy fucking baboon thing and this space chase. And you're like, what the fuck is it? Like, it's just, it's almost silly. But it, like you said, Thomas, it's treated with the utmost, you know, sort of respect. And the stakes are really, like, kind of drilled home and you feel them. Like when the, the fucking guy who's driving the rover takes the shot to the mask, you're like, Ooh. Jesus Christ. It's just, it's, it, it, it's absurd. But the fact that it's, like I said, handled with the utmost seriousness and it just sucks you in instantly. And you're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense in this movie. This sort of movie about the importance of man and God and, you know, intelligent life and humanity. Yeah, there's a moon rover chase. Fuck it. Why not? You know, it's just like it's one step away from them going over a hill and then they're on the dark side of the moon from Transformers. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it, it's absolutely lunacy, but it just works so well because everything else around it is so quiet and contemplative to where these moments of action in a really weird way are almost the levity points of the film. Yeah, and I like the fact that they even managed to establish some of this like more grounded stuff with just even some of the supporting cast members. Like we mentioned a couple of them, like Ruth Nega, but even like Don Sutherland showing up and playing this with the utmost sincerity about just like, I knew your father and he got me off the project and I have so much regret about that. Or even my favorite person who shows up and instantly like grounds like that sort of lived in element of this movie is fucking Natasha Leone. Yeah, it's like the security person, <laughs> which just love that she's treating it like she's a blue collar worker. Like, all right, come on, come here. Put your hand on there. All right, go to the next place, guys. Have a fun time. And I love the fact that apparently she got that job because she's neighbors with James Gray at like the same that, apartment complex. That's right. Yeah, they live in the same building. And, and he was just like, she was visiting like, oh, what are you doing? What's this? Space movie? Fuck yeah, I'll do that. I want to do that. Let me, give me a pot, James. It's like, okay, sure. Natasha. It's just instantly like, and she fits in perfectly, weirdly. That's why she's fucking Natasha Leone. He's like, nope. The security checkpoint person like, all right, go to the next place. Have a good day. Bye. <laughs> like she's a toll booth operator on um and i mean there's um a lot of other people like i love lisa gate hamilton showing up as one of like the the people instructing brad pitt about the job um or even john ortiz shows up like even Liv tyler i think it's one of her better performances in a while just because she's despite the fact she's playing kind of the thankless role of like i'm the woman who like he keeps aspiring to go back to at the same time she feels like very sincere like in that video message brad pitt sees we're just like look you weren't fucking around man like you were there but you weren't really around as like a fucking person to me. 
And that really fucking hurt our relationship. And you can see that regret on Pitt's face. And I think this is really a movie where, like, it plays on so much of Brad Pitt's persona as, like, the cool collected guy. At the same time, you see so much, like, when he starts breaking down after a certain point, like, you feel him actually crumbling as a person. That's why I've always liked him as, like, a movie star is that, like, he has that natural cool to him. But when Brad Pitt has ever, like, fallen apart, it feels 100% sincere. Like, you can tell, like, there are points where, like, that sort of movie star sheen breaks down. And I think this is one of the better examples of displaying that for him. Yeah, never underestimate the power of vulnerability. Uh, like, it, especially for, like you said, like a guy like him. It's, it's kind of like a, a little bit of a cliche uh, where you, you, you're, you're fighting to hold back the one tear. So when the tear does eventually come after two hours of you resisting it, like there is, there is catharsis, there is a release there that feels earned. So yeah, it's, it's nice to, to see this kind of, I mean, he's an astronaut. He's like the, the toughest of the tough guys, but, but yeah, to watch him kind of get taken apart uh, piece by piece uh, uh, throughout this journey. Yes, and it's, he's one of those guys where, like, that sort of, like, holding back one tier thing, only a real movie star can make that fucking moment work. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> in many other hands, that could be, like, this is the dumbest bullshit, this isn't going to fucking work. But then he does, like, God damn it, Brad. <laughs> You're crumbling with that one tear. I can see it in your eyes. Either that tear, that's not supposed to be there at all. Uh, but let's go ahead and wrap up with our final thoughts here. Mel, your final thoughts on Ad Astra. Uh, unlike Cool World, I don't want to see someone remake this. Uh, I, I thought this, uh, yeah, it's it's really, it's really great. I'd like to see another trailer recut that actually tells you what kind of movie this is you're getting into. Uh, because I, I, I feel like that gamble backfired. You talk about people who got hurt by the, the Fox-Disney merger. I'm one of them. They didn't believe that audiences would come to this. Uh, so they made a trailer that looked like something audiences would flock to. And whenever, you know, like that didn't happen, that didn't pan out because word got around super fast that that's not what this movie is. Like this is, this is a much smarter, quieter, like introspective uh, kind of thing. I mean, musing on uh, on the relationships of fathers and sons and and God and religion. I, I, I don't want to use the term thinking man's cinema. Uh, that, that seems oddly elitist. But yeah, come come to it. Sit down, immerse yourself in it. Just let it run. Just let it play. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a treat. Adam, your final thoughts on that, Astro? It's a wonderful movie. Not only does it look great, but it, it hits you in the feels. It, it, it's got just brilliant acting all around, especially from our lead, our man of this, you know, our topic. It, it's just, it, it looks great, sounds great, great story, perfectly executed for the story that they're trying to tell. If you're into sort of heady sci-fi, you can't go wrong with this. If you like Brad Pitt and you want to see one of his better performances, and I would argue of the two performances of the year that you know the, that he won the Oscar f- for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think this is even a better performance than that. If you haven't seen it and you like Brad Pitt or if you like sci-fi, it's totally worth it. Yeah, that kind of slow, introspective sci-fi. When we get that nowadays, it's usually sort of like an A24 level. It's like, I would say, like a, a recent one after Yang, the Colin Farrell movie is a great example of that. But that's also a much lower budget as opposed to this is a $100 million budget movie that could have only been made really before that like kind of Disney merger happened, where it's like not based on like an actual IP, it's an original story that costs over $100 million and has a big star involved, but still had some studio meddling things involved in it, not nearly as bad as say like a cool world. 
but um, it still had like some of those little bits of compromise that I think slightly negated from being like the absolute brilliant perfect movie it could be but at the same time it still is like has its own definitive personality and quiet contemplative nature to it that makes it so much more fascinating than a lot of the sci-fi movies we tend to get that are of like that budget scale and even just the we didn't mention this but i love the use of the the actual look of like the space stations and the planets and finding out that most of that was not actually cgi James Gray actually used a lot of, like, the effects from, like, 2001, A Space Odyssey, where it's, like, a lot of models and even, like, the planets are a lot of, like, pictures that are, like, sort of superimposed over spacescape and stuff like that. Um, and I, I dig down-to-earth, ironically, uh, use of, like, those kind of, like, older uh, special effects techniques to make this look so unique for, especially this era. And, uh, yeah, it's phenomenal performances from Pitt and everybody else that's involved. It's, it's a great example of, especially given he's a producer on this as well, this is also through Plan B, what Pitt is willing to kind of, like, champion and use his star image for. But it's time we did our weekly segment now, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double, 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 redo. That works. So the double redo is a segment we do every week where Adam, myself, and a guest, if they're so inclined, uh, bring to the table a good and a bad movie related to uh, the topic. So in this case, uh, each of us has a good movie to recommend and a bad one to steer you away from related to the career of Mr. Brad Pitt. And uh, Adam, you're going first. What are your choices? All right. So uh, for my bad choice, I'll just get it out briefly. It, it was very much an Oscar Beatty film. Uh, a lot of people were excited about it. The trailer, like, what is this? This looks so bizarre. And then I watched it and I was incredibly bored. Uh, I, I, I don't like it. I don't like anything about it. <laughs> um, I, I got the curious case of Benjamin Button. Some people, I'm sure it worked for them. It just it did not work for me on basically any level. I mean, the acting's fine. I guess, but just other than that, it just felt too over the top sappy. Uh, just, yeah, not for me. Uh, and for my good, it's a movie I just recently finally watched. Uh, Thomas and I actually watched it together. Um, I absolutely love it. I, I love the soundtrack. I love Brad, the way Brad Pitt looks. He's the only person who could pull off this look and, and make it like badass. I have uh, Killing Me Softly. Love the movie. Love the script. Love the. You know, sort of monologues that happen. Love the cast. I mean, other than Brad Pitt, you know, Richard Jenkins and Gandolfini and just uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal cast. And uh, I just think the movie works pretty much all around. Uh, super fun sort of, you know, Hitman movie. Fun is not an adjective I'd use to describe killing himself. Like. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe not fun. It's not a rollicking fun time, uh, necessarily. But it's a great movie. Yeah, like you mentioned, I watched it with you. And uh, that movie, I remember, it was kind of infamous where like, it did not do very well at the time. And it's one of the rare movies to get the F Cinema score. Which, oh, wow. if you're unaware, Cinema Score is this uh, company that basically takes the first reactions of people after seeing a movie. Um, like audiences initially coming out and like they grade them, they like they average up. And uh, that one's this is one of the rare ones to get an F cinema score. Um, I think mainly because it's kind of like what we talked about with Ad Astra. That movie was really advertised poorly as like, oh, it's a gritty crime movie that really gets you immersed in what's going on. And uh, really, that movie it's a very sad, contemplative movie once again, but this time about like sort of the the anger that built up in sort of like working class folks about like uh, you know politicians don't give a shit about us. 
And, like, it's literally going on at the time of, like, the first election of uh, Barack Obama. It's, like, 2008. And she's like, that guy doesn't give a shit about us. And it's interesting, especially given uh, what would happen, like, four years after that movie. It feels oddly prescient in an upsetting way <laughs> about that. Um, but at the same time, it's a great little crime movie. It's a phenomenal, like, really skeezy performance from Pitt. And everyone else, yeah, like, Gandolfini in particular is phenomenal. One of his last performances. Pretty stellar. And then Benjamin Button is one I have not seen since the theater... I don't remember really loving it at the time, just really being amazed by sort of the de-aging effects work to, like, make Brad Pitt, you know, old baby eventually become dying baby by the end of it. <laughs> uh, I, I think some of those effects are interesting, um, and it's one I've wanted to revisit, nothing else, because it's Fincher, uh, and it feels so different from a lot of what Fincher does. Um, but, yeah, at the same time, it's not one that I would put high on his uh, filmography for me. I guarantee you that was the pitch for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, too. Brad Pitt old baby dead baby <laughs> give me money <laughs> here's a hundred million dollars Fincher. do it <laughs> let's make this happen <laughs> well um, i'll go ahead and go with my choices here then um for my good i have when we've talked about this plenty of times on the show it was my alternate choice um and it's pit as part of a big ensemble that includes some people he would have been in the oceans movies with before this like george clooney but also francis mcdormand and a few others i have burn after reading uh, which is uh, the Coen Brothers film from 2008. That was another one that, like, I remember it came out at the time, like, right after their win for No Country for Old Men. And a lot of people dismissed it as, like, oh, it's, like, whatever. It's not that, that great a Coen Brothers movie. But uh, I think it's sneakily one of their best movies. I think it's such an incredible, also very cynical movie mm-hmm. about just, like, oh, yeah, a big CIA thing happens, a big kerfuffle, and it's in the hands of, like, either morons who have no idea the actual stakes of this because it's not really that high of stakes, a fucking CIA thing, or with people who are knowledgeable about the CIA but just don't give a shit. Like, it's either just total apathy or total delusion about what's going on here and i think it's like so fucking funny particularly pitt in this movie plays himbo the <laughs> best i maybe have ever seen it because he is like so dumb but in such a funny way where particularly when he's trying to communicate with john malkovich be like oh we haven't talked to you about the security of your shit he's like really fucking cool about it but it's like he's fucking up or even later on like you think it's a schwinn when talking about his bike he drove over to the fucking meeting with john malkovich with um it's there's so many funny even his dance his dance has been gift for a reason it's such a fucking funny bit and of course without spoiling it um his the end his character meets is one of the like most darkly funny bits in the Coen Brothers movie, which is saying a lot. But he's not only great, Clooney's great, Francis McDormand's great, Richard Jenkins pops up and he's always phenomenal. Malkovich is at his most unhinged <laughs> and funny in that movie. Tilda Swinton pops up and she's stellar too. It's, it's such a fun ensemble and a really, I think, underrated uh, one in the Coen Brothers filmography. Um, but then my bad one is one that was really infamous mostly at the time, and I hadn't seen it until recently, but it was very infamous for the off-screen sort of stuff that was going on behind the scenes of this movie. I have Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which of course this is the movie that he teamed up with Angelina Jolie on, and was the tabloid hullabaloo about the fact that he was with Jennifer Aniston at that time, but he had sparked up an affair with Angelina Jolie and later uh, divorced uh, Jennifer Aniston and went off with Jolie uh, after that movie happened. And um, I had not seen it, before doing, um, you know, sort of prep for this show. And um, I can get kind of why that's the only reason anyone really remembers this movie. Because um, it's a pretty, like, underwhelming sort of, like, action comedy from Doug Lyman, who is one of those directors where it's like, it's either great or shit. 
I'll say. There's rarely a middle ground with that dude. And um, he's, and you can tell that obviously there's a chemistry that's undeniable between those two. And if you know about the behind the scenes stuff, you can obviously tell why. So you can at least say that like they're like, you know, having some kind of fun together. There's a scene where they do a ballroom dance and are trying to like attack each other at the same time. It's pretty fun. <laughs> but that's in a sea of like a, a bunch of other like very elaborate, very forced sort of like action comedy bits. And also... Vince Vaughn may be at his most annoying as a side character, who's basically like a weird, like, uh, like a secret agent incel of some sort who lives with his mom and just is talking all the time, like, oh, women are terrible, they're the worst, and all this stuff. Like, what the fuck is this character at all? Like, honestly, I would rather see the movie that's about their superiors, who, like, only appeared, like, in voiceover. It's uh, Angela Bassett and Keith David are, like, their yeah. superiors that appear in, like, voiceover. <laughs> I want that movie. Those two. That's a hot couple. I'm telling you, that would have been great. That's like Cool World all over again. Like, can I follow that story instead? Yes, <laughs> like, right. Exactly. Clearly, the better one. <laughs> Burn after reading is a is a hoot, uh, <laughs> and I don't say that lightly. Uh, his his character, Brad Pitt's character in that is, I mean, and you you quoted my favorite line. His his delivery of that line is just it's just dynamite. He's just he's so so weird uh and kind of uncomfortable uh that one is a lot of fun um and uh and mr and mrs smith they are remaking that one uh, uh and and i'm 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 all for it because yeah i was really i was really disappointed uh with that like i, I had a i had a better movie in my head i think uh or at the very least a more ambitious movie in my head uh than the one i ultimately got it, it just didn't go hard enough for me i mean elite killers going at each other uh i mean i mean come on that should have been like james bond versus alec trevelyan uh like golden eye levels of <laughs> just uh just tension there and it always seemed more important to get the laugh than to do anything else in that movie uh, and i guess if that was the movie doug lemon's trying to make then i guess i can't be mad at him i was i was hoping for something a little a little more exciting yeah it's uh, the remake it's the tv show right with like donald glover and mm-hmm. it was going to be Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Which would have been awesome. Left. Right. And, th- and now it's uh, Maya Erskine, who I've seen in other things. She's a very good actress. I'm mm-hmm. curious to see if she can, um, what she can do with that. But yeah, you know, um, have you seen those two, Adam? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Burn After Reading is just, it's fantastic. I absolutely love it. I love, uh, you know, the ensemble. Pitt especially is just so funny. And, and yeah, he is the quintessential himbo. He's a fucking moron who just so simply got by because, you know, he's good looking and works at a gym. Uh, but yeah, he, he just, he's an absolute idiot. Yes. His sort of, his end bit is just hilarious. It's so fucking funny. And then, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I remember like the first time I saw it going, thinking to myself, Oh, this isn't that bad. I mean, I saw it when it came out on DVD and that, that's never a good sign. And after you watch a movie, you go, you know what? This wasn't that bad. Because uh, it does have some fun bits, like the ballroom dance, and their initial first fight is kind of fun, especially with some of the needle drops that happen. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it, it, it's just a poorly constructed action comedy, and it doesn't lean hard enough into either one. Like my thing is, if they were gonna be silly with it, just didn't make it really slapsticky. Then you go go as goofy as you can with it, whilst you know being able to employ the services of you know Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, or make it just straight up action and, and go hard, make it a hard R action movie. Um, and they did neither, and we, the audience, are dumber for having watched it. <laughs> well, now, Mel, I'm curious, what are your choices for the double redo? 
this was kind of tricky. Uh, for my bad, it was it was a toss up for a little while, uh, and I actually rewatched both of them uh, to determine because I hadn't seen either in such a long time, but to determine which was the the bigger crime cinematically. Um, I was gonna go with Meet Joe Black uh, because I think that movie is just really really weird and messy and not intentionally, uh, but but I ultimately I was more entertained by the kind of foolishness that was going on in that movie uh, than I was with with my actual pick, uh, which is The Devil's Own, uh, starring Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford, where Brad Pitt is, is an IRA guy uh, who, um, who comes to America uh, to live with Harrison Ford, who is a police officer, who is the one nice, decent police officer on the force, which is horseshit, whatever. Um, but that's neither here nor there. That's a conversation for another day. Uh, and he's here in America because he's trying to get money to buy Stinger missiles to take back to Ireland to fight the English. And here's the thing. That's, that subject matter uh, just is fascinating to me and always has been. But that movie feeds it to you on like a sixth grade level. Uh, so it, it's, it's very just kind of rudimentary. Uh, it's very top, like surface deep. It doesn't really do proper respect to the history uh, of the conflict. And, he, and he's rocking a, an Irish accent. That's not great, uh, like the, the entire time. Um, it's, it's certainly not as good as his accent from Snatch. Uh, which is like the pinnacle of acting as far as I'm concerned. It never comes together. It's the most boring movie about a quote-unquote terrorist living with a cop who are friends for an act and a half and then become enemies. Uh, and for my good one, uh, I'm, uh, I gotta go with 12 Monkeys. Um, that was one, that was one that was in that era where he, he put out like three fantastic movies back to back uh and uh, and and it turned me around on him um i mean that movie that movie does not treat mental illness very well uh looking back on it uh but he plays a, a young man in a mental institute and that performance is is so wild uh and so unhinged uh um, but it's really great that's a that's just a great movie all around uh even though terry gilliam ter apparently turned into a psycho that aside, uh, it's 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 just a wonderful time travel movie about a guy trying to release a, a disease that allows the animals to reclaim the earth because all the humans who don't die are forced to live underground. Uh, and I love that in true Terry Gilliam fashion, everything is hideous uh, and it's all steampunky and every it's the future, but everything looks like it's three hundred years old. Uh, and it, there's just people are drooling everywhere and just and the everyone's hair is questionable uh it's uh it's yeah it's it's fantastic and he's just he's such the standout uh in that his performance uh, just goes so hard uh every time he's on screen he just owns yeah we we've talked about 12 monkeys on the show before in our bruce willis episode from earlier this year but um in terms of the pit of it all that was so pinnacle for him especially that got him his first oscar nomination for supporting actor and is an interesting performance given modern times for sure, but at the same time, he's very committed to it and it did show that like, oh, he's not a pretty boy. He's actually mm -hmm. like a genuine actor who wants to like fully immerse himself in a role. 
no matter how bizarre and weird it is. Like, the scene with him and Bruce Willis on the staircase. Yeah. It's, like, one of the better examples. Like, the both of them at, like, sort of the height of their acting ability. Um, and I have not seen uh, your, your bad pick, though. I was looking at the poster, and I realized, like, oh, this is a movie that only exists as, like, a video store cover for me. Because <laughs> I remember, like, I've seen that cover so many times. just, like, Brad Pitt in profile and half of Harrison Ford's face partially obfuscated by like blackness and i'm like yep that's i I know that poster very well it just only exists as like this cover just like oh man they're facing off against each other at an awkward angle i wonder how that's gonna go (laughs) that was that era man the the mid to late 90s when every movie poster was just a fucking huge head sometimes right, full moon sometimes half moon sometimes crescent <laughs> but yeah and it really almost looks like like the face-off poster which would have been that same year it's just pit is that get the slightly ro- different angle from it <laughs> uh yeah i've seen both of these i mean yeah like i said we talked about 12 monkeys i love 12 monkeys i love the brad pitt of it all i love that he's just, just spoiled a rich fuck um he's just got these crazy ideas to maybe distance himself from his dad but also daddy pay attention to me and then yeah devil's own i saw uh, a long time ago probably right around when it came out and uh i just remember thinking like what is i, I can't this accent what is happening here <laughs> like i can't i can't watch this like what what is going on and uh yeah i've never gone back to it because of that and uh yeah so yeah fuck fucking stupid brad pitt like, like look yeah brad pitt's accent and snatch is good and because it, it's so crazy and over the top but brad pitt doing accents is not something that needs to happen <laughs> he's a bit inconsistent with that yeah for sure <laughs> to say the least uh but let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there um uh for my good choice i had uh killing me softly and my bad choice i had the curious case of benjamin butt for my good i had burn after reading and my bad i had mr and mrs smith and for my good, I had 12 monkeys. Uh, and for my bad, I had The Devil's Own and a little bit of trivia. That's the only movie I ever walked out of in a movie theater. Oh, wow. High esteem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, let's go ahead and start doing our exit for the show, though. Stay tuned. We'll be doing our picking for next week's episode at the end of this one. We want to thank some people first. We want to thank first Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the artwork for our show. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore water on Twitter and other places uh, to get more of his great stuff. And uh, of course, thanks to our loyal supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash DEDBpod, where for just $1 a month, you can become an edgelord patron and uh, you get to uh, listen to bonus podcasts we put out, like we would have put out recently, our top 10 aliens from movies and TV, uh, where Adam and I count both of those down our own lists. And uh, also you get to vote in polls for uh, individual movies we cover for an episode or even topics for an entire episode. And uh, around the time this episode's coming out, we'll have our poll for uh, next month we're doing Mafia movies. And uh, so you all get to vote between my two good choices for the episode, which are between uh, Jonathan Demme's Married to the Mob and A Bronx Tale. And I'll just say A Bronx Tale I have not seen before. So I'm very curious to, if we get that, I've heard a lot of interesting things about that one. Phenomenal movie. It really is. It's fantastic. It has one of my single favorite scenes of anything uh, in it. And uh, you'll know it the second you see it. Okay, well, that's not a ring endorsement. That's not a campaign slogan right there. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody for y'all to vote. If once again, you just become a patron at patreon.com slash DETBpod. And of course, the big person we want to thank is our guest, Mel. 
Thank you so much for coming back. We love having you on the show. Please promote yourself, plug anything out there uh, for people to follow you on the internet and such. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It is always such a pleasure uh, to talk to both of you. You can follow me on Twitter at Tangent1985, uh, as well as the YouTube channel of the same name, where we have not had a video up in a while, but the ones that are still there are awesome. I'm a freelance screenwriter in my spare time, so if you've got a movie you want made, hit me up. Slide into them DMs for Mel. That's right. I'll gladly take them. <laughs> I'll take your money. <laughs> Uh, but for more of us and our Rinky Dink operation, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, also you can email us stuff like feedback or even double reduce choices of your own for episodes over at our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And for more of me and my individual antics, uh, find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing on places like MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, my blog and uh at film-cred.com and just don't don't look for me <laughs> you wouldn't be like tommy lee jones yeah you're on neptune you want anybody yeah. to come for you 100%. i never cared about you or your family yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i never cared about you you edge lords doesn't matter i'm serious i don't want him to look okay that's fine <laughs> But uh, for more of us, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for several episodes we did before we joined Talk Film Society. And everything else, if you can't you know, support us on the Patreon, money can always be tight. It's totally cool. But what you can do to help us out for no money whatsoever is just to rate, review, or share the show around because it gets us more visibility. Yeah, you should. <laughs> for the endorsement <laughs> right there yep. but now Adam it's time we did our picking for next week's episode and we do this as I mentioned at the end of our episode we do our picking where Adam and I have um, either two good or two bad choices we switch up on the quality for that and uh, we each have assigned them between 1 and 10 for those choices and uh, it's either one of us chooses uh, you know a number between 1 and 10 to get us close to whatever good or bad choice or if we have a guest Mel will be doing that for this evening um, and keep in mind there is the godfather rule where uh, Adam and I each have a single veto in our back pocket we got to use before May and if we hear one of the choices where we'll say oh you know Mel says oh yeah, I'm going to pick number 7 one of us is like okay that's closest to number 8 which is this particular choice the other person could be like you know what don't want to cover that choice, and we'll say, actually, I'll take the cannoli, unless <laughs> that choice is gone, and we got to go with other other choice the other person has. And uh, the topic that we'll be doing is an interesting one we've had on the back burner for quite a bit, and we're like, you know what, we didn't have anything to like tie into for this particular week, so let's have some fun with revenge films, which, you know, there's obviously like the action thriller revenge movie that could fit into, but, you know, revenge is a dish not only best served cold, but in different manners, so it could be any wide variety. It's, it's a very wide-ranging topic. Yeah, and it's one of my uh, favorite subgenres too. I mean, when it when it's done right, there's there's kind of nothing better. You know, you get to see you know somebody who more than likely deserves it sort of get their comeuppance, and you know, friends become friends, enemies become enemies. You know, it's just it's it's fucking it's a really really fun sort of subgenre. But at the same time, we have to wonder: was it worth it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it is. <laughs> revenge is always worth it, guys. Take out your revenge. The time. Well, let's see, Adam, because uh, you have the two good picks. I've got the two bad picks. So, Mel, first for Adam's two good choices, number between one and ten. Nine. All right. At number ten, 
which either way, this would have gone out of a happy town. So I hope you are too. But at number 10, I have the uh, Korean film, I Saw the Devil. Ah. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> that Definitely going to go with that one. Uh, fucking oh, movie. Not taking the cannoli on that, for no. sure. Love that movie. Very glad to revisit that. What was your other choice? Uh, number one, I have a movie that re- very recently came out. It's one that you actually saw in theater, and I, I, it took me a while to get to see it. But when I finally did, I kind of fell in love with it. Within the first 10 minutes of the movie, I have The Card Counter. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's another fun romp of a movie right there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Paul yeah, Schrader sure. and his wacky antics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that one's pretty great, but yeah, I'm, I'm still down for Wrestling Devil. I also would have been good with either of those, though. All right. Well, good, Dick. <laughs> well... Now let's see. My two bad choices, please, Mel. Pick a number between one and ten. Uh, four. Okay. Over at number three, I had one from, uh, you know, we talked about her briefly in one of my bad choices, uh, very much uh, tangentially related to Mr. Pitt for quite a while. Um, I have uh, this movie that was a very big hit at the time, uh, but I never liked it then, and I don't think I'll like it again now. I have the big action assassin movie, Wanted. Oh, God. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, you know, I remember actually when it came out thinking it was all right. Uh, I never like loved it. I, I got a kick out of Morgan Freeman in it, swearing and stuff, which, mm-hmm. which always makes me laugh. You know, shoot this motherfucker. You're like, yeah, but uh, kill him, guys. But no, I. Uh, we'll see how it holds up. I'm not taking the cannoli on that one. Well, I'm um, on the other side. Over at number eight. I had uh, one that I would be curious to revisit, nothing else, because I like this most of this director's work, but I wasn't a huge fan of this one. Um, I have Nicholas Winding reference, Only God Forgives. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, I don't even know if I ever even saw that. I, mean, I think that, that was another one that, like, you know, people saw Drive. Drive was a weird hit. And yeah. everyone was like, oh, Nicholas Winding Refn, let's put another big one out for you. And it's just like, uh, Ryan Gosling's there, but it's not a very commercial movie at all, <laughs> by any degree. You want to talk about people walking out, that was one. Yep, that was a big one. Because a lot of people were not fans of that one. Uh, but yeah, so still, Wanted and I Saw the Devil. That'll be a lot of fun to talk about next time. But until then, everybody, uh, just remember, you don't need your Neptune dad's approval to be loved. I'll be your Neptune daddy. 